But as I've been thinking about Christmas and a Christmas sermon, I, I realized something about tradition. Tradition can be good, but it can be very, very, it can be very dangerous. It really can. Good things can fall prey to tradition. And we can lose the true value of anything. Once man gets a hold of something and tries to monopolize it and, and tries to make it better, you know, it can lose something. And I'm, I'm afraid that Christ, uh, Christmas has lost a lot of its zeal and it's a lot of the, its understanding. And so uh, I'll try to clarify that as I go along, as I speak about Christmas or, or, the, or the virgin birth from Paul's perspective. And, uh, and this is important because Christmas, as you and I know it today, has developed. Early Christians did not celebrate Christmas. Did you know that? A lot of people might find that hard to believe, but it, that developed over the first three or four centuries. Uh, Christians didn't start celebrating Christmas uh, Formally, probably until the late 300 A.D., the, 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 the late 4th century. And that's when Christians started formally celebrating some type of Christmas celebration. But even over the years, that itself has taken different shapes and forms. And, uh, and, and, and the church's desire to sort of sanctify pagan festivals sort of started taking some of the traditions of the different cultures around them where the Christian gospel went and started incorporating them into uh, the Christmas tradition. It's sort of tried to uh, sanctify the culture by adapting to certain pagan festivals. That's where we get the Christmas tree, we get the, uh, the burning of logs, we get mistletoe and holly and, and, and so many other things. Uh, these things came from pagan backgrounds. But that's what church was trying to do to sort of fight against the culture. They had to offer Christians something that the rest of the culture, the rest of pagan culture was given, and they would give these festivals, these, these winter solstice festivals throughout the year, uh, in, in the winter time. And so what the Christian church started to do, or tried to do, was combat that by sanctifying it, taking some of these traditions on, and give Christians something to celebrate, because everybody else was what? They were celebrating something, but the Christians weren't doing nothing. They weren't celebrating holidays. And that's how it started to develop and so on and so forth. It's important to know that because many of us come out of orthodoxy, formal orthodoxy like myself. I was introduced to Christmas in a very formal way. And guess what? It meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to me. I sang the songs. I went to church. I read the readings. I heard the homilies. I left church. Guess what? Dead. I left dead because I went in dead. You see, to understand Christmas, you have to be saved by the cross. You have to be saved by the cross. You've got to be born again. Otherwise, Christmas is a story. Christmas is a tale. It could be mythology. We follow it. We're, we're cultural Christians. and We go along for the ride. And we go to the high holidays. And we went to the mass. And we did all these certain things. Because that's what the family did. But on the inside, it still meant nothing to me. I'm sure to many of us, it meant nothing. We tried to enjoy it. We tried to enter into the joy that other people had or it seemingly had. But I didn't understand the cross. See, Christmas doesn't come alive until you're saved by the cross. You need to hear the preaching of salvation before you can understand the virgin's birth. 
So much attention is given to the virgin's birth, the virgin birth. So much attention is given to that day, the birth of Christ. But so much is misunderstood about it. Too much time, too much effort is given to it. You know, it's hard to go into the New Testament and see how little, how little the apostles spoke about the virgin birth. Very little. It's mentioned in Matthew's gospel. It's mentioned in Luke's gospel. And both those are found in a storyline narrative because they were explaining something bigger and greater. They were given the life in the biography of Christ. Matthew was explaining to the Jewish nation that the king had come and the king had to uh, fulfill certain genealogical sort of prerequisites. And to do that, Matthew had to show that Jesus Christ did come from the line. That Jesus Christ was the Messiah according to Joseph. And and if we follow Luke's gospel, Luke was trying to explain to a pagan world how Jesus is both God and man. Going all the way back to Adam. So they had a purpose. But over the years we have taken it, we have elevated it to a place that if we're not careful, tradition will choke out the cross. Tradition will choke out a true understanding and meaning of the humanity of Christ and the reason for it. And that's why I want to go to Paul today, because Paul really gives us a true understanding of this. Let me just, true Christmas is not a holiday. I'm not going to understand Christmas through one holiday. Please, as I already said, it's in the cross and faithful preaching that we understand Christ's humanity and his divinity. Me and John go to a church down in Philadelphia, the 10th Presbyterian Church. And we noticed one day, at least John noticed, he, he made a, an observation that there's no cross there. You know, we're used to seeing the cross at all times, and we like that. And John went up to the pastor of the church afterward, and said, so we noticed that there's no cross. And he says, because it's in the preaching. You might miss that. The cross is in the message. That's what saves. It's the message that saves. And how important that is, because we, I never understood Christmas until I was born again. I remember the first year, the first Christmas, I celebrated and I was born again. Holy, holy, holy never sounded so sweet. Noel, Noel never sounded so real. It never touched my heart. It never brought tears. It never stirred up religious affections for God. It never stirred up thanksgiving and gratitude. But when you're born again, then I understood what I went through for 30 years and just went in and I left. I went in and I left and I went in and I left. Then all of a sudden I finally understood the majesty of the Christ child. I finally understood. But you can't get there until you go to the cross first. And I say that because tradition can steal that. And it can get very formal. Very mechanical. And we can go through that. As evangelical Christians, and I want you to say, that doesn't happen to us. It can. But if you really want to enjoy Christmas year in and year out, you got to go to a church, and we had to be part of a church that's faithful to the preaching of the cross all year long. Not all of a sudden a home run at Christmas Day about the, the Christ child. No, what makes that real is understanding why Christ 
had to come. Why Christ chose to come. Why God sent his only begotten son. And he used the woman. Then I understand the majesty. The engineering majesty of God in the virgin birth. As I said before, the biblical writers did not speak much about the virgin birth. They were more concerned about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. That was the body of apostolic preaching. It was the crucifixion and the resurrection and the shed blood of Christ. That is what the apostles uh, focused on. That is what saved people. They didn't give much consideration to about the virgin birth. And in our creeds, which we, we, spoke, uh, we said before, uh, we've got to remember about the creeds, and we spoke about this last week, about how they formulated the mother of God. The mother of God had very little to do with Mary, and had everything to do with the divinity of Christ. It was another way of affirming the clear implication that Jesus Christ is God. Because the early church was under attack by certain sects. One sect said that, well, Jesus Christ is fully God, but he wasn't a man. He didn't have a body. He floated around. And another sect said that Jesus Christ was fully human, but he was not, but he was not God. So the early church formulated the creeds around these kind of problems. And one of them was Mary, the mother of God. But it really points to the deity of Christ. So with that sort of the background, I want to speak about Paul's Christmas today. I want to speak, how did Paul, who's representing the other apostles, how did he perceive the virgin birth? It's interesting. Paul's use of, the, of Christ's birth, as we see here in, in Galatians, he was, he was born of the woman. is only a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And it's important for us to know that. Because to Paul and the other apostles, it was a means, it was a great supernatural event, but it wasn't the means. It wasn't the thing that should capture our attention. What captures our attention is that God sent His Son in human body to live under the law and die for sinners that we may be redeemed and rescued from this present evil age we live in. That is everything the Old Testament was pointing to. And for Paul to be living at this time, to be saved by Christ, and to understand his mind was wild, his mind was filled with theological understanding and insight of what the Old Testament prophets pointed to. He was living, he saw the resurrected Christ. He was redeemed in the middle of persecuting Christ's body. This man was overwhelmed by the grace of God. Overwhelmed. Everywhere Paul went, every time he spoke about born of the woman, it always had a redeeming quality. For Paul, Christmas is nothing more than a redeeming quality to save sinners that we can never forget. All our great hymns all point to that fact. But we don't take time out to make too much of it. You know, uh, throughout the centuries, there's always been church leaders that have opposed Christmas. You might not know that. Not so much now. Calvin wouldn't celebrate it. The early reformers would not celebrate it. Presbyterians would not celebrate it. Uh, in Ireland, uh, Scotland, they, they would not celebrate Christmas. They were so caught up and mesmerized by Christ, the crucified Savior, 
They wanted to make sure that church authority didn't come in and all of a sudden say, well, we're going to set feast dates and we're going to celebrate this and we're going to celebrate that. They wanted to make sure because over the centuries, you know what Christmas turned out to be? Partying, drunkenness, and carousing. Has it changed? No. Most Protestants celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. I like Christmas. We got our two-foot Christmas tree. We got a little nativity scene around it. Uh, and that's it. We even have a little stand, Santa Claus there. We puffed up Santa Claus. And, uh, and we have a snowman. So what? So what? It's okay for us. We don't worship them. But the point is that if I never had another Christmas tree, I could care less. I don't need a Christmas tree. I don't need a present. I don't need a star on top of a tree. I don't need going to Macy's and go look at Macy's. They're selling Jesus books. Macy's is not called to defend the gospel. You and I are. Institutions and, and economics is not called to defend the virgin's birth. Me and you do that as we live it out day in and day out. They can steal Christmas all they want. I want you to know it doesn't mean much to God. I know you might find that horrific, but God's not really concerned about it. What he's concerned about is faithful preaching, week in and week out. His people come to church and they consistently are fed nutritiously by faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God is concerned about. If you and I never put up another Christmas tree again, God would be fine. What, we, what are we going to do with all the Christmas trees and Christians that don't witness the gospel? Please. We don't need lights anymore. I know people saying, well, we've got to put up lights and we've got, we got to let them know we're Christians. And I feel like saying, but you're not even saved. You don't, you don't even want to hear about the gospel. I speak to you about the gospel and you shoot me down, but yet you want to make sure you have lights on your trees so the neighbors know you're what? You're Christians. But let's go into the text. Verse 3, we'll start. Paul says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. He starts by reminding them of their past empty religious lives. I need to hear that, because I don't know about you, most of us, most of us have a past empty, what? Spiritual. Religious life. I didn't grow up in the blessing of an evangelical home. My parents weren't born-again believers who nurtured me on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't find that until I was 30 years old. I followed elementary principles of the world. And what Paul is probably talking about here, most scholars believe that it's, it's, it's just philosophical religious teachings, whether it's the law of Moses or, or, or the pagan religions, whatever it might have been, that's what people grew up in. And, and Paul is reminding them that those were empty religious ceremonies that did not produce anything. Either as a Jew under the law of Moses or pagans under their own version of trying to placate, uh, placating God somehow. What is represented in this verse is a whole life from the cradle to the grave of following empty religious traditions. People follow blind traditions that offer nothing. Churches were filled this holiday and hearing nothing. 
It might sound cold. It might sound heartless. But what good is going to church and not hearing the message of salvation? Of truly understanding and hearing an articulate message about being saved and why Christ had to come. Even though the law of Moses was a direct revelation from God to his people, guess what they turned it into be? Just dead cultural Judaism. What has orthodox mainstream Christianity done to the Christian gospel today? Let's be real. With their icons and their statues and their sacraments, it's nothing but dead traditional cultural Christianity. It offers no salvation. Jesus rebuked the people of his own day for worshiping God with their mouth. But what did he say? Your hearts are far from him. You're teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. How easy it is and how easy it has become for the Christian church to fall into cold, formal traditionalism that just puts up the shell, but not, does not have the kernel, does not have the message that saves, that sanctifies, that justifies, that gives hope, gives assurance, and arrests all man's fears of death and dying and standing before God. It does none of that. At all. It was a formal relationship with God. It's like saying, going to God and saying, Sir, or Mr., it was cold. And what God always wanted us for is to say, Abba, a close, personal, face-to-face, heart-to-heart relationship with God. That's what God always desired. Always desired. The longer I'm saved, the more I'm just so skeptical towards tradition. Just so skeptical. It offers nothing. We can fall into a coldness. As Christians, we've got to be careful that our own personal lives don't get cold. That we don't forget about our first love. That we stay zealous for the Lord. That our witness is strong. That we walk in holiness. We walk in purity. We walk in love. We walk in mercy. We walk in forgiveness. We walk in led by the power of the Spirit. And not by the flesh. Christians could be generally saved... But guess what? Become traditionalists. How many churches you think today were filled with Christians who just went to church because it was Sunday? And that's what you do on Sunday. You go to, I'm not questioning their salvation, but it's easy to get cold on the inside. And we have to be careful of that. It's easy for our Bible studies to get cold. It's easy for our personal devotions, our personal prayer life to grow cold. And we have to constantly remember and and stay zealous for the Lord. We have to stir each other up, the Bible says, to what? Love and good works. Constantly have to stay on top of that. No, God didn't want some cold formalism, a relationship with him. He seeks nothing but the heart of the sinner. So, G- so Paul goes on, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He gives no air time to Mary. Don't miss this. He never has. He, born of a woman, born under the law, 
because, but God always wanted more for humanity. He wanted a high, thriving, personal relationship with all the affections that a son would give to a father and a father would give to his son and daughter. Nothing less than deep religious spiritual affection, a love for God, uh, an assurance with God as a child would have the safety of a father. That's what God has for us. That kind of close relationship. With all the safety and assurance that, and love that a child needs. And this is what God did in the fullness of time. This is what God did. This is, this is God's gift in the fullness of time. Or a better understanding of the fullness of time. Or in the time of fulfillment. In the time that God simply chose according to his own purposes. To start a new timeline. And that new timeline is, it's the new covenant that Christ shed his blood for and his broken body that ushered in the last days. We are in the last days. In the fullness of time or in the, in, in the fulfillment of time, God sent the Son. We are now in the last days. And he sent his Son. Now, so Paul is teaching us here. He almost glosses over Mary and he teaches about his Son. That is his divinity, born of the woman. Paul doesn't even say Mary. He never says Mary. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. Never said anything about Mary. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, he said he was born according to the flesh. Mentioned nothing about Mary. In Philippians chapter 2, in a famous verse of Scripture where it says, even though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself of all his deity, of all his rights to use his divine power. He emptied himself and became a man. Didn't say nothing about Mary. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, he says that it, uh, God gave his son to crucify sin in the flesh. Didn't say nothing about Mary. It was all about redeeming quality of Christ. We can get so mesmerized by a story and we can lose what it's all about. It is about the redeeming love of God, the sanctifying love of God. We need to stay passionate for that at all times in our personal life, in our personal ministries. Every time someone comes into church, they need to hear this. We need to sing it. We need to pray it. We need to preach it. We need to teach it. We need to live it upstairs in our fellowship. That is what God desires. Taking time out of the 365 days of the year to celebrate Christ's birthday, trust me, means nothing to God. At all. You might find that hard. But it means nothing. At all. Again, I like Christmas. I like gifts. I'll be honest with you. I like to give them. I like to get them. But I want to make sure we understand that Christmas is something that man has elevated to a place that we have to be careful of a fallen prey to. And make sure that it doesn't outrun the cross. Life is about the cross. Not trying to experience God one day out of the year. America is filled with spiritual hangovers this week. As everybody was rushing around because it was Christmas. And their lives are still empty and void of any truth in any life at all. And week in and week out, we come in here and we love the Lord. 
and we love one another. Every day is Christmas for us. Every day. Amen. Verse 5 says, To redeem those who are under the law. His humanity was twofold. He bypasses Mary. He speaks about his humanity. And it's first he had to live life as a human under the good law of God and fulfill its just requirements and prove his legitimate sonship. That's what Christ did. And then he took this sinless body and he offered it on the cross for those who did not live up to God's good laws. That's you and me. As a sin offering. To redeem us who are under the law. That's what he did. Never mentioned Mary at all. Because Mary just represents Christ's humanity. Remember that. That might not sound like much. But to the apostles and to Paul, Mary represented Christ's humanity. And that's important for us to know. So that we might receive adoption as sons, as with Christ. God has brought us as close to Himself as divinely possible. God could not bring us as close to we are as close as we are to Him than He already has. We're not just forgiven sinners. We're not just saints. We're not just sons and we're not just daughters. We are co-heirs of the whole kingdom of Christ. How can I get nailed down to just the virgin birth and the nativity? How can I? I'm a co-heir. In the Old Testament, the promise was of the land. You shall be put into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But Paul teaches us that we have inherited the whole world belongs to us now. Not a little portion. We're co-heirs with Christ. How awesome is God? How can we forget this? And because you are sons, he goes to say, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about the new birth, about being born again, about giving a new heart. We have this spontaneous combustion of the heart that yearns for God, that has to have God. Being born again is not about going to church and about going to heaven. It's about loving God as a son and as a daughter and following God the way Christ followed God. Understand something. We will never perfectly follow the Father the way the Son followed the Father. I will never be able to obey Father as, as Christ obeyed the Father. I'll never be able to love the Father as Christ obeyed the, loved the Father. That is your desire. That's my desire. But I'll tell you right now. One day, we will. In heaven, we will love the Father like Christ loved the Father. We will obey the Father as Christ obeyed the Father. We will love him, we will see him, we will seek him as Christ always did. In this world, it's imperfect. In the next world, it'll be perfect. That's Christmas, according to Paul. Paul couldn't camp around the nativity scene and make a big spectacle of it. He couldn't spend the time there. He had to go to the cross, he had to go to redemption. 
He had to go to sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. What began over here was fulfilled over here. This is wonderful, but look at all this. The spirit of Abba. The spirit's cry of Abba. To draw so close to God. To love him. To sense his safety. And you might miss this Abba. We know some translations say daddy. Or daddy, daddy. And it's a term of endearment. Remember something. This is no uh, childish baby talk. That Paul is talking about here. What it means. It's a legal sense. Not just uh, a sentimental sense. It's a legal statement. Only the inherited oldest son can go and say, Abba, I'm your legal heir. I'm your legal heir. It has much to do with what's ours now in the spirit. To approach God, as Hebrews says, boldly go to the throne of grace. Many people pray. Muslims pray all the time. But they're not boldly going to the throne of grace. Only you and I can go there and say, Father, I love you. And I blew it last night. I am a mess in my heart. Even though my heart condemns me, you're greater than my heart. The only thing I have to offer to you, God, is yourself. I come here empty-handed, but but Christ in my heart. I have nothing. I'm coming bold because your spirit compels me to come bold. I'm coming bold because the the cry of Abba Father is in my heart. I've sinned, but I can't run. I have to run to you. I need you more today than I did yesterday. That's bold. That's not formalism. That's Christianity. And that's what Christ died for. That's what Christ was born for. Rules, regulations, even the Jewish under Moses doesn't work anymore. God has something greater. God has something better. And as we go along, and as I spoke before, when you go through the New Testament and you read about how the apostles, specifically Paul, addresses the virgin birth, they never mention Mary. It's always about his humanity and what he did, how he suffered under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we can receive the adoption of sons, receive the Spirit's cry, which is Abba Father, and to know we're not slaves, but we're co-heirs. We can't miss that. I can hear that all year long. A born-again believer cannot get tired of hearing what Christ has done for them. It never, ever gets old. He goes on to say and finish, So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is Christmas. This is Christmas according to Paul. The virgin birth is only a significant supernatural event. Listen, it's only one significant event supernatural event in a long history of supernatural events called redemptive history. It's only one means. It's, 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 it's God called Noah and told him to build an ark. Supernatural event. God saved Moses and the Israelites 
out of bondage by ten plagues, supernatural event. God opened up the Red Sea, supernatural event. Samuel was born, supernatural event. David took down Goliath, a supernatural event. So on and so forth. The birth of Christ, another supernatural event. But it all is significant because it's all leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the purchase of sinners. And we always have to make sure of that. And we can't get caught up with just this and just that. We can separate and we can analyze, but we don't separate totally. It's only part of something greater. Redemptive history. We can't miss that. And as I opened up before, I'll close now. If we truly want to embrace Christmas this year or any other year, we have to understand the preaching of the cross week in and week out. We have to respond to the cross. We have to love the cross. We have to love the resurrection. And when we do, that virgin that gave birth to the baby and put him in a manger, that day will never be the same again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us the importance of the virgin birth. We thank you for showing us the importance of Mary's role in redemptive history. But we also thank you for showing us the importance of Mary. For showing us the importance of Christ, the God-man, his humanity and his divinity. How we lived under the law to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. I thank you, Father God, that we are not just slaves anymore, but we're sons and we're daughters. We're co-heirs with Christ, Father God. And that Christmas or the virgin birth, Father God, was just one supernatural event in a long succession of supernatural events, Father God, leading up to our personal salvation. God, let us rejoice as the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents and enters into the kingdom of God. In Jesus.